Hey everyone, happy May Day. I am very excited to share this shop floor discussion with you. We've been doing these sorts of things on occasion and uh, it's really awesome and we really appreciate the support that our patrons give us which allow us to do these sorts of things. But this particular one was so important, we wanted to make sure to get it out to everybody. And so uh, for this May Day, we've got this one for you. Enjoy and solidarity forever. Alrighty, should I just launch into it? Should I, should I just let her rip like a Beyblade? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's been... I feel like this is one of those things that, like, folks have been figuring, like, hey, are y'all going to talk about this? <laughs> so yeah. we might as well get to it. <laughs> well, we've, we alluded to it in the uh, other Overtime episode, then we did a little bit on the main thing, but it just, there's too much. There's too fucking much. <laughs> from the calendar any longer. The day is finally here. We're going to talk to you about the lessons that we've learned about shop floor organizing from the ALU. This is your shop floor discussions episode, your overtime episode of Work Stoppage, your favorite labor podcast, which is entirely listener supported. So thank you so much for the money that you're giving us on Patreon. If you're hearing this and you haven't subscribed to Patreon, it's because we unlocked it, and I think it would be a really good idea if you subscribe to the Patreon <laughs> to hear episodes like this all the time. If you don't want to give us any money, totally cool. There's a Discord you can jump into. So get in there. It's where you can see all the memes from the meme review on the regular episodes. And if you want something even easier than that, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you think it will help the show. Just yell it into the wind. Uh, so everybody, including us, has been talking about the recent and momentous win by the Amazon Labor Union, who came out of absolute nowhere to form the first union at one of the biggest, most anti-union companies in the world. Uh, this is such an incredible victory for organized labor, and we thought it would be worth diving into the details of exactly how the ALU organizers pulled off such an historic victory. Yeah, and so there's a few key aspects of their organizing campaign that through going through interview after interview that people have been doing with the incredible organizers at the ALU, summary articles that, that some great labor journalists have put together, we've tried to sort of cull the, the main takeaways the, that we can learn from this incredible win by these organizers. And so the first one, and you know, uh, this is not going to be a surprise to anybody. It's one of the core themes of the show, but this victory really gets into why we harp on it so much, which is that this union drive by the Amazon labor union was foundationally based on being a worker led rank and file drive based on listening to every employee's concerns and trying to make every worker possible feel they have a personal stake in their organizing drive and that their needs are heard by the union and will be fought for. So one of the core points that organizers stressed over and over again in the various interviews and articles that came out about this campaign after the success was the importance of listening to fellow workers. Organizers made it a point to treat fellow workers as people rather than, you know, simply a number to move into a yes vote column on a, you know, checklist, 
One of the most effective organizing techniques that radical organizers generally stress in this sort of is this sort of listening, often referred to as the 80-20 rule, wherein the goal in any organizing conversation is for the organizer to spend 80% of the conversation listening and only 20% of it speaking. And so like Julian Mitchell Israel, who was an early member of the organizing committee, talked about this saying, quote, you go and you listen, and rather than telling them they should vote yes, telling them here's how you organize, you just ask them the right questions, and people will come up with their own answers to it. People have different answers, and because they're the workers, they're the ones being affected, it's going to be the right answer, end quote. Yeah, this allowed the organizers to focus on one of the key aspects of their campaign, that it was led by workers and former workers of the JFK facility, and that any worker who wanted to join the organization camp, the organizing campaign could become an organizer. This was a major difference between the ALU's drive and the RWDSU's in Bessemer, Alabama, where Smalls and Palmer took a trip to in early 2021. They found the staff organizers the RWDSU deployed for the campaign to be less than welcoming, that this separation between the organizers and the workers made it easier for Amazon to third-party the union. By emphasizing the worker-led nature of the campaign, it became much easier for organizers to push back on Amazon's propaganda. We have a quote here. At first, workers would come up, come to us and be like, how are you guys going to be able to be in the building? You guys don't even work here. Then we'd literally show them our work badges and say, we do work here. Everyone that's in the union here right now works here. So they'd be curious at that point, and by the end of the conversation, they'd often feel bamboozled by Amazon because they realized that they had been lied to. Uh, and this was a quote from uh, Angelica Maldonado. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how simple the tactics really were in many cases. And I, I mean, I feel like it's part of what makes me crazy on this show, because sometimes I feel like we're just saying, like, do the obvious thing, do the obvious thing. <laughs> yeah. But when you focus on simple stuff, it often works really well. And so you see the organizers here at ALU organizing on such, um, focusing on such simple tactics as just trying to be relatable to their coworkers and sharing personal stories one-on-one. And those connections, you know, they, they build a lot of trust and form real lasting relationships. Uh, so you have another quote from Angelica Maldonado where she says, I'd ask coworkers, what if your grandkids have to work here? What if your children have to? Yeah, you might be older than me, but I'm a mom also, and we want the same things, right? When they found out that I was also a mom and that I was sacrificing all my free time to help build a union, a lot of them really saw how serious this was. Being vulnerable, too. I'd explain what I was sacrificing and we, what we were all sacrificing, being there to make sure that everyone in the building can have better working conditions. Yeah, and in addition to, you know, that openness, sharing with the, you know, with your coworkers, having real conversations with them and not just, you know, treating them as another number. One thing, one of the aspects of this campaign that... <laughs> is one that may be a little difficult to replicate everywhere is the sheer level of dedication we saw from the organizers at the ALU. Like one key goal considering the size of the JFK eight facility, which as you know, as we know, has over 8,000 employees in the bargaining unit was for the organizers to have organizing conversations, which is with as many new workers a day as possible with a minimum goal of 10 every day. And so like, the, the organizers' constant presence, their tireless work was crucial to showing workers that organizers were serious and that they weren't just a couple individuals engaged in a hopeless but well-meaning crusade against the Amazon behemoth. 
as Derek Palmer said, quote, the more comfortable they get with us, that's when they start opening up to us, end quote. And, and that level of comfort is built over time. Like, he, like they point out that these organizers were in the building constantly. Not only, you know, they, they'd have their shifts, their, their 10 to 12 hour shifts, depending on what schedule they're on. And when their work shifts were over, they would go take care of, you know, whatever errands, if they had to go pick a kid up from school, they had to feed their cat or whatever, and then turn right back around go back to the warehouse for organizing shifts. So like these folks were literally at the facility nearly constantly. I mean, sometimes like Chris Smalls and other organizers would camp outside the facility for up to 36 hours at a time in order to catch multiple shift change and specifically to target shifts where the union's presence wasn't as strong as on others. So to really get that constant presence of the union to, you know, make it more relatable and really give them that familiarity with the workers. Yeah. Uh, And organizers were also assisted by the presence of several SALTs, uh, workers who took the jobs at the warehouse to specifically help the union drive effort, including Justine Medina, who proposed the use of the communist-era organization ta- tactics, such as uh, William Z. Foster's organizing methods in the steel industry, which we mentioned in the episode, uh, in the main episode. Uh, Medina said, uh, there is a lot of practical advice in it. Foster writes that every effort must be made to draw the widest possible ranks of the workers into the activities of the leading decisive committees. This was pretty much the, this was pretty much our strategy the whole time. Put workers in the driver's seat on decisive communities, not bullshit committees. God, that just that hits so hard. You know, it's crazy how when you empower the workers to do it themselves, it turns out so much better than when you try to form some kind of like disattached, like, oh, we're we're the leadership of the union kind of situation. And this completely matches everything that we see from empirical studies of labor drives, which is that engaging with workers directly in building the campaign for the first contract is one of the union tactics most correlated with successful NLRB elections. So this emphasis on the fact that every worker was welcome to become an organizer, join the committee, and play leading roles in the union drive was a core part of the ALU's success. As organizer Connor Spence told Strikewave, we got to democratically decide what our dues are. Everybody got to be part of the ratification process for the Constitution. Everybody got to be part of deciding how executive board members are elected, how stewards are elected, what the salaries are for those positions. It made people feel more comfortable that they had a voice within, as opposed to just being subsumed with a larger entity that might make a lot of decisions on their behalf that they weren't all right with. And this level of direct and democratic involvement at all levels of the campaign also served as a bulwark against the potential for bureaucratization in the future, something we truly love to see, uh, where he can continues to say, we built our constitution so that the ALU, even if the core group right now left, would still be a democratic organization that functioned by using the collective experience of the workers. Right now, the way we build the union, despite the turnover, is that we've deeply organized the internal veterans of the company. Now, because we have wine garden rights, we can curb wrongful terminations a lot more than we used to be able to. So that's a really, really strong tactic. It's like, okay, yeah, this leadership is is great, but we want it to be set up so that like, even if all of this, you know, if we all left tomorrow, Tomorrow, the people who are going to continue working here know that they have rights and know how to fucking exercise those rights and can continue to hold their jobs and, and be powerful union voices within the company. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things that we've seen it at a bunch of drives where even, you know, like, cause this is one of those things where I don't want it to come off. Like we're saying that the RWDSU was doing a terrible job down in Bessemer. Cause we're not like we support that drive. We, we hope that when the votes are finally actually counted that they ended up winning. But one of the, that core differences though, is just that when you give every worker the opportunity to like, as Spence talked about there, be directly involved with such important decisions as, you know, putting together a constitution, deciding on dues, like deciding how that union is going to be structured, how the union drive is going to be won. And to give people real participation instead of just sort of notional participation where that like that makes a huge difference in the level of investment you get from folks in, in, in the actual process, which is kind of acts like as a, as a bit of a force multiplier because like getting somebody in a, a traditional union campaign where you may have made your case, you may have made it sound great, done a good job explaining why the union's important to people. But if they're not feeling as engaged, I think the likelihood that that person is necessarily going to then go reach out to other mm-hmm. people in the business and, and, or, and, and, pull them to the side of the union is a lot lower than in a union drive like this, where everyone is engaged at every level from the beginning. And because it makes the workers understand that it's their union, that if they have an issue with it, they can go and make a change. They can go and and air their voice and it has to be heard. And so that's so key. And like, that's why we harp on the whole rank and file thing so much. And so in addition to this core of, of worker democracy, of participation by everybody. Another thing that we've pointed out in the fact in, in the past that that some you know major U.S. unions and union federations have struggled with in the past is issues that might be considered you know too thorny or controversial for the union to be involved in, specifically like issues about like the level of diversity in a workforce and how to interact with that, how to, and, and so like the ALU with their rank and file approach where as their approach was to embrace every worker as a future union member in that same vein was to embrace the racial, cultural, religious, and national differences among the workers rather than like avoiding that or, or trying to like skate around things that might bring up some, you know, potential thorny conversations between different workers. And so this is such an important issue. Like it's, it's an issue anywhere, but in a society like the U S uh, where it, it's a strongly multinational character this is absolutely vital to any kind of organizing like not just labor organizing really any sort of organizing you have to embrace the the you know the diversity of the working class because it's a big part of what makes the working class so strong and so rather than avoiding the issue the ALU took the exact opposite approach, celebrating the diversity of the JFK workforce and leaning on it in their organizing efforts, as well as highlighting the racist attitudes and actions of Amazon and its hired like anti-union goons. And specifically on how they, you know, embrace the diversity of the workforce, Angelica Maldonado had uh, had some more to say on that where she said, "A lot of our coworkers are African. During the campaign, I had an idea, which ended up turning out great." My neighbor, she's also African and she caters. So I said, we've given out so much food. Why don't we give out food that targets the culture of the workers at Amazon? So one day I asked my neighbor to make us some African fried rice. And that really attracted a whole bunch of African workers towards us. And we gained a couple of new organizers off that. And and Maldonado is herself uh, half Barbadian, half Ecuadorian. So like, that's the other thing, like 
one of the things that was really just interesting reading about all of this was the the number of different cultures in the Amazon workforce was extreme. And yet the ALU, despite the, the difficulties of, that could be presented by that, especially to a more traditional union, they leaned into it and it really helped. Like Moldonado continued, people really appreciate the thought of food, especially from their culture. Once we started bringing in African rice and empanadas, I had new moms and aunts. That must have been when things really started resonating. We were really thoughtful. If you show people you're really on their side, they won't disappear on you. Lots of people at JFK 8 can't afford lunch every day. Yeah, absolutely. I, the food campaign was so huge here and honestly was a, a big organizing uh, thing that uh, even ended up in something that we will cover later, which is the the uh, arresting of some of the workers, including Smalls. But uh, to continue, I mean, organizers recognized that uh, such a diverse workforce and having campaign materials that are only in English were it's not going to be able to include every worker in the union drive. So they launched an effort to organize in as many languages as possible, efforts which were aimed with some incredibly skilled uh, workers that were in the shop itself. Yeah, I mean, like the embrace of, of multicultural and, and multi-ethnic workers at the Amazon facility was like so, so critical to their success. And you see that come up in an interview with Jacobin that a worker organizer, uh, Brima Silla, a Liberian immigrant, uh, with a PhD in public policy, who ended up working at JFK 8 after he was laid off from the school he was teaching at during the pandemic, he did this interview with Jacobin, and he was describing how he'd leveraged his background and language skills to help make the union campaign welcoming to all workers. And he says, I've got skills, not, not just with social media, but also with languages. I speak French, Arabic, English, and three African languages. So that made it a lot easier for me to communicate with immigrant workers inside the building. And there are a lot of us here at Amazon. Senegalese, Nigerians, Liberians, Ghanaians, Algerians, Egyptians, Lebanese, Pakistanis, Albanians, Polish, Filipinos, Malaysians, and a lot of Latinos. I set up WhatsApp groups for the Amazon immigrants so that the news could spread to all the workers in the building. Social media isn't new to me. I have experience forming and running a big WhatsApp group, which is one of my duties as the general secretary of uh ACASI, the Association Against Sexual Abuse in Childhood, which is based in Spain. So I made an African Votes for ALU chat and another Immigrants for ALU chat. And soon after, I helped create separate WhatsApp chats for Caribbeans, for Latinos, and for Asians. I talked with everybody, Africans, Chinese, Polish workers, one Polish guy. I started by asking him about football. It turned out he used to play fullback. We had a conversation, and eventually I asked him what he thought about working at Amazon. He told me the pay was too low and that he had a lot of responsibilities because he had to take care of his elder parents. And it was really hard to do with 1825 an hour. And when he told me he would vote yes on the union, I realized we really had everybody on board. It's crazy that this guy speaks five fucking languages <laughs> and has a PhD and has to work at fucking Amazon. Like kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and through the efforts of this person and, and others who who were in this movement, the union was able to reach a huge number of workers whom English was not their first language and truly made them like a full part of the campaign. This embrace of diversity, despite the logistical challenges it presents, such as making the campaign materials available in multiple languages, strengthened the bonds between organizers and their co-workers and allowed the union to find support in every part of the warehouse. Yeah. And this embracement, embracing of diversity really is, is one of the parts of the ALU's campaign that I do think also highlights like the next 
part that we wanted to get into, which is just the sheer diversity of tactics that they employed, especially in their messaging campaign. Like the way that they used different tactics and weren't afraid to say, hey, this thing we're trying isn't working, so let's change it instead of just plowing ahead because, you know, this is how things are supposed to be done. And and really embracing that sort of like agile adaptability in their campaign was a really important way for how they were able to spread the message of the Amazon labor union across, you know, thousands and thousands of, of coworkers. And so from their base camp at a bus station, just outside the warehouse, which is, you know, where a lot of this organizing took place, where it was basically like the launch pad for a lot of their campaign, they presented their case to coworkers alongside, as we said, we talked about the food, but also, you know, music and even free weed. Cause you know, New York is a, is a legal state. <laughs> and, and the funniest thing about the handing out free weed is not just, you know, Hey, it's 2022. And this is a thing that happens now is that now that Amazon has lost and is trying to throw every legal argument they can at the union, they're now trying to argue that the union handing out free weed at a tent outside the facility was somehow a way of coercing workers to vote for the union. <laughs> oh, like, hell yeah. I love being coerced by the person who is offering me free cannabis. <laughs> I, usually the coercion goes like this. Do you want to play hacky sack, bro? Not really. That's cool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is It is just such an, a ludicrous argument that I'm almost kind of glad they made it because, like, it's not mm-hmm. going to work, and it's mm-hmm. very funny. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, in addition to, you know, the, the, the sort of stuff that obviously everybody, you know, likes. Everybody likes free stuff. Everybody likes free li- li- live music. Uh, a lot of people are going to respond to free weed. Like, but in addition, you also had this embracing of just any sort of way to engage with people. The union leaders made TikTok videos. They, they made s'mores outside, especially like in the colder months, uh, having that fire out there, being able to give people some, some, some hot, tasty treats. But, you know, they also were, like, just, you know, having a good time with folks. They playing hip-hop, Marvin Gaye, like, all sorts of different ways of, of making it. That's another thing I think that is, is left out a lot of the time. It's like when we talk about how important union organizing is and how vital it is for workers' material interests and how sometimes this can be, you know, a life-or-death thing, I, I do think sometimes we forget that, like, one of the ways to make your union and your, any sort of organizing attractive, relatable to people, the sort of thing where somebody's going to see it and be like, oh, maybe I should stop by and, take, and talk to them, is to make it fun. <laughs> like, right. it, it, it's, it's not something that I think necessarily makes it into all the this is how you do successful organizing campaign checklists. But it's just one of those on a very basic human level. I think something you always have to keep in your mind, which can some, you know, it can be easy to forget, but the, the ALU organizers clearly understood, like if we want to be able to engage with the entire workforce, we actually have to make this something people are going to want to do. And mm-hmm. that because the, diver- the workforce is so diverse, that's going to mean a whole lot of different like <laughs> means of, of bringing people in. And this didn't just mean, you know, having, you know, free weed and barbecues and s'mores and, and, and all sorts of different music. It also meant that being willing to like, just 
sit with people and deal with shitty situations that they were going through in their lives. Like when workers were dealing with family crises, the union would get together. And like, if they happen to be religious, they would do, you know, like a group prayer. Uh, if, uh, when one employee got fired and became homeless, the group set up a fundraising campaign. And, and I mean, I know that I posted like a bunch of social media posts. They were really doing the, this was not just a, Hey, we're going to latch onto this to, to try and get messaging out. They were really doing a good job of, pushing that out there, trying to get folks to donate to help this, this person who was fired and then became homeless. And in addition to all that, they also, of course, did, had focused on one of the traditional organizing tactics, which is presenting folks with pro-union literature to explain why it's important to join the union, but also to focus on the ways that Amazon was exploiting them, focusing on the goals of the union and also like the problems and, and just like way that the Amazon union busting campaign was full of lies and how much it made the, the job worse for everybody at the job site. And as we talked about in the, the section on diversity, like the literature was printed in multiple different languages and it included leaflets about how many thousands of dollars Amazon's anti-union consultants were getting paid per day, surveys that act asked workers to rank their priorities and news articles printed out from the internet on stuff like, how Amazon doubled base pay for corporate employees, but mm -hmm. certainly not for warehouse employees. Uh, articles about the city of Rotterdam dismantling a historic bridge so Jeff Bezos's yacht could pass through. And a motherboard report on Amazon's anti-union consultants in Staten Island when they were on the floor and demonizing organizers as thugs, which... You know, we understand the history of that term and the way that it often gets used in a very racist manner, especially when a lot of the organizers leading this campaign are black. And yet, you know, the, the companies out here telling you it's, it cares about the diversity of its team. And yet the, you know, union busters it's hiring are going out there and just being openly racist. So they, they seized on all of these means for communicating. with people. It's like it's like shocking how if you start talking to workers one-on-one -on -one in their own language and inviting them to, to fun things and, and bringing food, they'll start listening to you when you start directly attacking the corporation and directly attacking Jeff Bezos and especially directly attacking the union busting tactics themselves and the exploitative conditions uh, in the workplace, which was absolutely core to their flyering strategy. So you have Justine Medina again, who says their own propaganda campaign of voting no, the posters around the warehouse every few feet, people would get annoyed with that and we would lean into that. We filed ULPs, unfair labor practices, Every time we file, uh, we would tell people that Amazon is breaking the law and that this is union busting. We knew that in order to win, we had to do intense worker education the entire time. We said that they were doing illegal stuff, doing union busting. We immediately used all that info we could against them. And then the union is passing out shirts, they're passing out lanyards, and all kinds of gear to allow workers to show their support on the floor, which in turn helps show fellow workers that the union wasn't just a few people in a tent outside, but a growing movement within the facility. So this comes full circle around to what we were talking about at the top of the episode, when the, the union organizers can say, like, look, here's my employee badge. I work here. I work on that line right over there. You know, that's really, really huge to getting people's interest in the union up because, like, otherwise, 
the company is going to have a really easy time third partying you. And uh, then after speaking with their coworkers about the union drive, these organizers would try and get them to join like a big telegram or a WhatsApp organizing chat that the union had set up to communicate with their supporters. And these chats also helped give workers the ability to communicate across shifts since day shift and night shift workers might not always, you know, run into each other a lot on the floor. So this makes sure that they're not just having one conversation, but they're having a consistent and continuous conversation on the the apps on their smartphone and and anybody who spent a lot of time in a discord will tell you how fucking <laughs> engaging it can be you know no oh, absolutely i mean the organizers told motherboard that they were while they were doing phone ba- banking they contacted every worker on the list provided by amazon at least once and roughly 60 percent of the workers indicated strong or moderate support of the union Then they went through the list a second time, targeting undecided voters. The constant engagement was essential to ensuring the people were committed to the union. You've got to chip away at people. You can't just expect them to flip on the first conversation. Cassio Medina, who was a 23-year-old worker at JFK 8, an ALU organizer, said, Workers were also encouraged to spread the word themselves and invite supportive co-workers to the chat's themselves directly, expanding the reach beyond what the core of the organizers could have done on their own. Uh, in the days before the election, they projected signs underneath underneath Amazon's name on the front of the warehouse saying, they fired someone you know, they arrested your co-workers, and vote yes. <laughs> That's so fucking awesome. Uh, that, I mean, when you show up to work and you're just like, they fired someone you know is right under the logo. That, I mean, that, that'll get you. That's your... such a powerful message. Like, Absolutely. incredibly smart. Well, that's like the the real critical strength here is they always bring it back down to the particular. They're not talking in like lofty ideological terms. They're talking in very, very concrete terms all the time. And like I, I also think it's so powerful that they were encouraging the workers themselves to invite their coworkers and friends into the chats because like, mm-hmm. you know – Anybody who was an early internet user will tell you, like, people are very wary of organized spaces if they don't have a buddy who's like, yeah, it's great in here. You need to get in here right away. Like, that, that's so critical. And so through this entire campaign, the organizers, like, really never lost sight of the ultimate goal. And, and so, like, every time there was a, a promise or a threat from Amazon, anytime there was a setback, they would just drive home. Look, unionizing is the one way that we can ensure that we have rights on the shop floor. And uh, you have a quote from Christian Smalls where he says, when I do talk to workers... I tell them I was fired wrongfully because I tried to protect workers' health and safety. And that can happen to you. You can complain or submit a grievance and they can just terminate you or target you to be terminated or retaliate against you. And there's no protection. So the only way we're going to get protected is by forming that union. I think that that's super important to not just like be like, oh, everything's going to be great when we organize. Oh, uh, you know, we're together. So everything's going to be fine. There's not going to be any problems. The truth is, is that this retaliation is very real and material to people and that there is a risk. And the only way to actually fight against it is collectively and by forming this union and to not shy away from the actual things that the company is going to do is one of the key tactics is just not lying to people. They know when you're lying to them, if they're like, oh, everything's good be fine if we're if we act like a union then it's and then someone gets fired like where are you yeah absolutely and like all of these kind of like all of what we've already talked about about their process about their different tactics builds into that one of the things that they really focused on was not 
be, and we got kind of already said this, but not being afraid to think outside the box and constantly pressing the limits and even a lot of times exceeding them of what would normally be called for in traditional organizing tactics. And also specifically not allowing the company and its incredible amount of resources to, to like, to be frank, to intimidate them and to just keep sticking to their message and trying to get it out, even if what they're doing, we you know, wouldn't necessarily be the sort of things you would you would see in a traditional union drive. And just to reemphasize, and I know we said this on the episode when we first talked about their win, but just again to underline like the mismatch here in far in terms of resources, because you know the company always has a monetary, a material, a structural advantage over the union coming in but this one was particularly like stark where the union spent a total of $120,000 which was almost entirely raised through GoFundMe donations like like Chris Small said I mean we started this with nothing with two tables two chairs and a tent and I believe like four people as their their organizers to start with they could not have started from a smaller crew and by comparison Amazon spent $4.3 million just on union consultants. And granted, that wasn't just at JFK 8. That was across the country in 2021. But that's just on consultants. That doesn't include the huge amount of money they spent in their media blitz. It doesn't include all the money spent on union-busting materials. Like, they spent literally millions of dollars to fight this. Like, you're talking an order of magnitude of of scale difference between the money, you know, and, and resources that the union was able to call on. And yet the union drive, the organizers of the ALU were able to maximize everything that they had in order to make every dollar they spent counted. And by a lot of that was just through their level of dedication. And so I know we have been on, on the show, uh, sometimes pumping the brakes on people hoping for relief from like the NLRB because of the fact that the NLRB is a institution of a bourgeois government and is, subject to the whims of different presidential administrations and oftentimes really just doesn't even when it's staffed with well, like well-intentioned well-meaning pro-labor folks it doesn't like u.s labor law has very little teeth but one instance where an nlrb ruling was able to provide some actual material help was in this organizing drive where specifically because of the number of of charges that have been filed against amazon across the country largely in you know during the bessemer uh, first election and also during the alu's drive but also just charges filed by people at amazon facilities across the country that resulted in a national settlement agreement between the Amazon and the and the NLRB after just just this mountain of labor law violations. And a part of that settlement that really was taken advantage of by the ALU organizers was the requirement that Amazon acknowledge the right of workers to conduct union organizing on Amazon property when off the clock as long as it was in non-work areas like the employee break room. Now, of course... You know, if you've gone through, you know, some of the U.S. labor law highlights, protected activity is supposed to be protected activity. But like having Amazon actually forced to sign this sort of an agreement, post the agreement publicly throughout the facility to make people aware of it really helped provide that little bit of extra protection. And what that really helped the workers do was expand the area 
that they were able to do all their other organizing tactics that we were talking about before, especially, you know, potlucks, food, like providing food, one-on-one conversations, not only from the bus stop outside the facility and, and, you know, areas off Amazon's property, but also allowed them to expand that organizing into JFK 8 itself. Yeah. I mean, that. I think that there are certain benefits to to actually getting rulings coming down in your favor uh, that can make the company uh, at least go a little, like, and maybe not go easier, but to have less avenues for repression. Uh, For sure. One of the major differences in the ALU's organizing campaign to traditional tactics was actually the ALU's tactic of going public almost immediately, which was really surprising because obviously that's going to bring a bunch of uh, repression right away. But while uh, traditional union uh, campaign tactics would frown on this, preferring to organize behind the scenes for as long as possible to build up support before the company can start a union busting campaign, the ALU organizers that this really just wasn't possible. With the size of the warehouse and the constant turnover, so the, the sort of tactic would leave organizers unable to effectively reach out to workers and win the election. So going publicly, going public immediately allowed them to freeze the eligibility roles early and immediately start publicly attacking Amazon for their exploitation and union busting in ways in ways that it could reach the maximum number of workers possible, as well as maximizing their media impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really brilliant strategy, right? Like, it's very materialist, or even you could call it like a cybernetic approach, where you're just like, okay, look, Amazon is set up to completely prevent the traditional style of organizing from being effective in their warehouses. So even though it's going to come with some disadvantages, we have to try doing what they're not ready for and doing it really, really hard. And it turns out that shit fucking works when you identify a specific material issue that would constrain your opponent and then monopolize on it, capitalize on it, whatever, take advantage of it. It's fucking effective. And it does lead to some hiccups, you know? The ALU actually had to withdraw their initial petition in November because they technically hadn't quite collected the 30% of cards that they needed, but this didn't stop the campaign, and it certainly didn't stop them from winning. So you have quotes from people like Cassio Mendoza, who says, I was always on board with filing with the minimum because it would be impossible to do it any other way. We were losing 80 to 100 workers per week, so every time we didn't get a minimum of 20 signatures in a day, we were actually moving backwards. It was an uphill battle the entire time to just get a hundred plus new signatures per week. By the time we would have gotten 4,000, 5,000 signed cards, we would have had only 2,000 workers who were still current employees. And so the ALU organizers weren't shy about filing these unfair labor practice charges whenever Amazon broke the law. Uh, And you have Connor Spence again, who's saying, we'd file lots of charges every time a manager or union buster stepped out of line. That is something that ended up putting a lot of pressure on the company legally. And then also, we would try to expose Amazon on social media or to the media whenever we had the opportunity. We'd post pictures on social media, post videos on social media, make sure that people were always aware of what they were doing on the inside, the kind of union busting that they were engaging in. And that that kind of like social media campaign is really, really important too. And, and, you know, not to talk shit on the existing unions, but like, oh my God, you guys, ask your like cool younger cousin how TikTok works. I promise (laughs) it's worth your time. Yeah, I mean, through going over things, I've even found locals that don't even have websites. Mm -hmm. Like, how does your local not have a website? (laughs) Yeah, and and another aspect that was different about ALU's Drive, and 
honestly kind of flies in the face of some of the recommendations of even some of the, you know, labor organizers and, and labor historians that we've talked about, especially like in reference when we talked about, you know, the first Bessemer election was whether or not to do door knocking and impromptu house calls, Mm -hmm. because that is often a staple tactic of, you know, standard union drives. You know, you you get, you get the list of the people, you get the addresses and you go try and talk to them at home where they're not on the property. They're not within security camera distance of the property. And so they're a lot less likely to feel intimidated by the presence of the company. However, in this case, the ALU organizers said they tried that from the get-go, but they found that these, you know, unprompted, like, showing up at people's door, at least in their case, in the, the specific case of the workers at JFK 8, that that wasn't really resonating with people, that that wasn't necessarily how most of their coworkers really wanted to be or felt very comfortable being contacted by the union. And so that caused them to kind of just stop the the door knocking tactic and switch those resources back onto direct conversations at JFK eight itself and into the big social media chats where they were able to get more response from workers. And and because like, and I want to bring that up because like, it is one of the things that we mentioned, like uh, when we talked about Bessemer, it was one of the things that Jane McAlevey pointed out that like is something that she had recommended that the RWDSU do more of in Alabama And now, of course, it's possible that tactic is going to be, like any individual tactic, more effective at one facility and less effective at another. But that, I think, just really highlights the importance of adaptability. That's like, that is one of the, the, clearly one of the key strengths of the ALU organizers in their campaign was they took that recommendation and they tried it and it wasn't working. And so they said, look, we don't have, you know, infinite resources to throw at this thing. Let's focus on the stuff that's working. But that doesn't mean just completely throwing the playbook out because, for instance, another tactic that McAlevey herself has specifically recommended, like a lot in her book, uh, No Shortcuts, that they did focus on and they absolutely took advantage of was identifying the most influential workers on each shift in each area and targeting them for organizing. And so by securing the support of existing leaders within the workforce, the union was able to expand their base much faster. And that even included focusing on team leaders who, which are at Amazon are called process assistants or PAs. And, and this is the sort of thing that initially organizers didn't really have a lot of uh, confidence that they would be able to get a lot of, you know, uh, supporters out of was this, this, you know, group of PAs. Like for instance, Angelica Maldonado said, we thought the PAs were a lost cause, but if you get PAs on your side, then that hurts Amazon. And at the end, we had PAs wearing ALU shirts, which like that's huge to take somebody who's not only identified as a as like a natural leader potentially, but also as somebody who's more or less been identified by Amazon as like not Mm -hmm. necessarily like a shift supervisor, but like somebody who's been picked out as like they're a team lead and so like somebody that amazon thinks this person's gonna definitely take our side if you can convert those people it's the effects you know cascade from there yeah i mean it's 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 like kind of not that surprising when you really think about it right if you get the cool kids and the people who who folks are used to listening to on your side your message will spread a lot faster <laughs> yeah absolutely and like Brett Daniels who's uh, another you know JFK warehouse worker and early ALU organizer said relating to this 
A PA who hated my guts, who yelled at me in the cafeteria when organizing to get signatures months ago. As soon as they saw the arrest, referring to Chris Smalls and, and the other ALU organizers who were arrested uh, by the NYPD working for Amazon. Um, so he said, as soon as they saw the arrest, they said, that's not right. He said, we're not going to let that happen. <laughs> and Daniel says that after that, after that moment of seeing Amazon's repression directly, that PA began organizing for the ALU every day since, even on his days off. And that's just like, that's so huge. That is just, just so important and such a testament to the tenacity and the dedication of the ALU organizers to, you know, keep pressing and finding, uh, find ways to relate to people, even if you don't think from the first glance that they're necessarily going to be supportive right away. Yeah. Well, you can always turn their repression back around on them, you know, like putting up that, the, the, the message under the Amazon logo where it says like they arrested your friend or what did it say? Someone you work with. It's like that really gets people riled up because I think a lot of these guys, I I don't want to characterize this PA in particular, but like especially older folks who like believe in fairness and, and systems and stuff. Sometimes they really have to see that system completely fail them and their fellow workers right in front of their eyes. And sometimes when they see that they turn into your strongest fucking ally for workers rights. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we, when we saw the arrests, we were a little concerned because of the, you know, true depravity of, of Amazon's tactics. But uh, I guess in some ways it was able to galvanize people in support of the union, which I mean, is, you know, people on the left were not exactly surprised about that. But also when dealing with a wider population of people, you have to be a little bit more tempered in that sort of expectation. But anyway, absolutely. Another big change in tactics that the LU organizers deployed was the way they responded to the captive audience meetings rather than trying to simply inoculate workers outside of the meetings uh, to respond to afterwards. Organizers and union supporters actively sought out the meetings in order to directly <laughs> confront Amazon's union busters and call out their lies and distortions. That's this so tactic, cool. I know. <laughs> This tactic is much more confrontational confrontational than than other typical uh, union campaigns and ended up paying off with the increasing the legitimacy of the union in the eyes of the workers. Uh, and to go back to uh, what Justine Medina was saying, uh, she said, we would sometimes try to get into sessions where we that we weren't on the list for. There was a lead organizing team of about a dozen people in JFK 8, and, there, and then the organizing committee that had more people in its periphery, more than 100 people. Through those channels, we would try to make sure that anyone in the meeting would speak up, say something. We told people, if you're invited into the captive audience meetings, talk back. We always had someone in there. If they were scheduled to be there already, even better because you can't kick them out. <laughs> By the final weeks leading up to the vote, uh, they started kicking people out. They said, you're not allowed in if you're not supposed to be here. We would try to do it anyways. We, would, we were demanding to be heard as a union, uh, but we did so politely. We realized from the first couple times that the workers responded better to that. They saw our being disruptive as disrespectful, and so we tried to be polite. We wanted to explain our side. Yeah, so you're just you're turning the union, uh, uh, you're turning the company's repression against them in favor of the union. Every time they try and shut you out, you're like, you just say to your fellow workers, "Hey, look at the way they're shutting me out," and then like your workers are like, 
your fellow workers are like, hey, yeah, that is pretty fucked up. Well, so, and I yeah. think that one of the important points of that is that ha- the the idea of looking at what the people are responding to, because to just go in there and mm-hmm. start shouting from the hallway, let me in, let me in, and like how disruptive and, and almost counterproductive that could be, especially when you're trying to appeal to all of the workers, was it's so important to be like, we're respectfully asking to come in and speak. You should. We, the union should be heard, and to to have that level of, of formality shows that you are very serious to a lot yeah. of people. And this worked exactly the way the the union organizers were hoping that it did, where the company uh, makes moves to push them out of captive audience meetings, and then all of the other workers are suddenly like demanding to know why they can't hear from the union, which is awesome. And 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 you you have a further quote here from Medina who says a lot of workers themselves who weren't necessarily yes voters or who were on the fence would raise their hands and say why won't you let someone from the union speak up about what's going on why don't you let them say their side we would help push that idea whenever captive audiences came up in one-on-one conversations in the warehouse we would say we think they should let us have a meeting too we would talk about that agitate workers would bring that up on their own And then, uh, you know, you have Connor Spence as well, who says the union busters in the beginning were super aggressive. In the end, they were so docile. We really put them in their place. That's so badass, dude. Um, He continues, the union busters even said it themselves, that they were impressed with us. The NLRB said, we've never seen anybody deal with these consultants the way you guys do. Their union busters were a waste of money. They weren't able to provide the service they're supposed to provide to the company. That's so fucking awesome. That that this company threw millions of dollars at these union busters and just through, you know, normal union organizing and normal interpersonal, you know, uh, solidarity building tactics, these workers were able to make sure that all of that money was pissed right down the drain. Yeah. And something else, though, that I think was really interesting about those confrontations was that there were a brilliant tactic on their own. But they became amplified when they combined it with their social media strategy Mm -hmm. because they didn't just, you know, go to these captive audience meetings and push back. They recorded it and they were able to get that out there on Twitter, on TikTok, on probably on Instagram, (laughs) Um, but actually get that out there so that not just the workers in that meeting could see the confrontation, although it's obviously the most important group. But then everybody could see the way that the union busters would hem and haw and either directly lie or dissemble or dance around why they weren't letting the union talk. And so they were able to not only have the impact in that small group of workers, but then like broadcast that message to everyone, which is just so important. And like, just to emphasize that, you know, not every business is going to necessarily be quite as image conscious as Amazon sometimes can be and sometimes isn't. And I mean, even we've already seen that as these campaigns roll along, sometimes you'll see companies shift tactics, like even make with the like flagrantly will it being willing to break the law as we've seen, especially lately from Starbucks, like mm-hmm. uh, since they've been losing more and more and more elections, they've become more willing to just, like not even pretend really that they're firing people for real reasons. They're just making shit up and firing anybody who's a union organizer in an attempt to stem the tide of the workers United movement. But, 
despite all that, I think what this shows is not that there's, you know, necessarily that you you write down exactly what the ALU did at JFK eight and you just try and replicate that. Cause I think one of the things we want to emphasize here is that like there's individual tactics that we should learn from and see if they can be used at, at any place that anybody else is trying to organize. But it's that it's these few core like aspects of their campaign structurally, the way that it's rank and file built, the way that it's focused on democracy, the way that it's focused on engaging every worker, the way that it focused on embracing diversity, the way that it embraced new media to, like for its, its messaging campaign, the way that it wasn't afraid to throw out tactics that weren't working, even if they'd been listed as tried and true, and in the same way, weren't afraid to shake up like tactics and change them to be more effective in their specific environment. And that is, you know, it's a difficult thing to just tell people be adaptable, but it's, it's, it's such a key facet of why the ALU was able to win. And like, I think like, you know, I could, I, I could have sat down and tried to write a long summary on, on exactly what they did and why it worked and all that. But I, I mean, we, we use this quote in the first story and we're putting it here again, because I think that the workers themselves had the best way to sum up why their campaign worked. And this is from Justin, uh, Justine Medina immediately after their victory, where she said, do not be afraid to fight, to get as dirty as the bosses will, to match or beat the energy they're bringing. Do not be afraid to agitate and to antagonize the bosses as a union should. Use every tool in your toolbox, file those unfair labor practice charges every chance you get. Protest and do collective action. Keep building. Absolutely. Hell yeah. I, uh, so, so awesome. And the energy, it's just, I'm just so like overjoyed to be able to actually even share this story and to to be able to point to all of these really important tactics because that it's exactly that is there's no one size fits all for union organizing even when we have like the method of rank and file organizing that specifically is a very adaptable kind of tactic it's the reason why you're engaging with the most people and you're trying to engage and trying to get the most people who are the workers actually to participate in this what is a democratic organization of a rank and file union and and that's one of the reasons why we push that so much because it is effective you're bringing all of the workers in and you are also hopefully being able to adapt to a lot of the changing tactics that the company may use or even just the situation that's on the ground and with that i just want to thank everybody for listening and for supporting the show and, you know, we really, this this uh, project couldn't be done without you. And just like, you know, the, these unions couldn't happen without the workers. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. And we will see you next time. As always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity and WhatsApp chats. <laughs> solidarity, everybody. Mother, mother. There's too many of you to cry Brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, father We don't need Escalate. You see, war is not the answer. 
for only love can comprehend. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and get here today. Picket lines and picket signs don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. Right. 